from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah. It's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Tuesday, November 14th. Utah has made a new commitment to funding more wildlife crossing infrastructure to improve both motorist and wildlife safety. Some believe multi-year funding is needed to sustain momentum for this type of infrastructure. Alex Gonzalez of the Utah News Connection has more. This week, budget legislation was signed into law in Utah that includes $20 million for building wildlife crossing infrastructure. Utah joins other western states in enacting bills that allow them to receive millions of dollars in federal matching funds to install wildlife overpasses, underpasses, and fencing. Bill Christensen with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation says Utah has a long history of investing in wildlife crossings and the state's $20 million appropriation will turn into $100 million. He says one potential project is around Echo Junction. This is about 350 miles northeast of Salt Lake City. And during the legislative session last year, in one week, 32 elk were hit and killed. No people were killed, but the property damage was just huge and significant. Christensen says these crossings help not only preserve wildlife connectivity and migration routes, but also improve public safety for Utah roadways. He says this issue has garnered strong bipartisan support. While Christensen calls the latest one-time state appropriation a huge win, he'd like to see the state continue to solidify its commitment to building wildlife crossing structures throughout a recurring allocation of funds from the Utah legislature. Christensen says funding is always a challenge when dealing with these projects. Wildlife crossings can be as inexpensive as fencing along a highway or as expensive as a large overpass or underpass. I think that there is big support from our citizens now as they've seen the positive effects of number one, public safety, and number two, the preserving of wildlife. Christensen adds the state also has invested in tracking how these crossings are used. He adds research on wildlife crossings across the West by a former Utah State University professor. Patricia Kramer has been a pioneering effort that informs project development. For Utah News Connection, I'm Alex Gonzalez. Supply concerns left over from the pandemic and anxieties around national security have led to an increased interest in rare earth minerals. In an effort to better understand the country's mineral resources, the U.S. government has begun surveying historic mining areas. As KOTO's Gavin McGough reports, those efforts have brought the federal government to the skies above Colorado. Late this summer and then throughout the fall, residents of Telluride have noticed a periodic buzz in the skies above town. That buzz was coming from helicopters sent out by the federal government to take a bird's eye look at the minerals below Earth's surface. Tian Grau, a research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey, says if you spotted one of these helicopters, you might have noticed it carried a sort of nose. It is a sensor that sticks out from the front of the helicopter like a big boom or stinger. And at the end of the stinger is a magnetometer, which senses the strength of the Earth's magnetic field. Different rocks in the subsurface affect the magnetic field in the atmosphere. And this sensor looks at those subtle variations. And from that, we can, by doing a, a bunch of analysis, understand what rock types are below the surface and where they extend. 
So from above, the helicopter reads magnetic variations in the Earth below. But wait, says Grau, there's more. The other instrument is inside the helicopter, and this is the second method. It's um, called gamma ray spectrometry. It's a crystal pack inside the, the helicopter. It's detecting gamma rays. Which come wafting off rocks as they slowly decompose, losing little particles, isotopes in atoms, and sending them floating into the air. If this all sounds high-tech, Grau says it's actually nothing new. These methods have been around for quite a while, especially the magnetic method. It started up in the 1940s. The um, mining industry has been using these methods for that many years to, to help them explore for minerals. However, Grau explains, in the mid-20th century, when companies were monitoring Colorado for mining assets, they were flying at high elevations, which compromised the data. The closer you get to the ground, the better resolution you have of what's there. Because it was so long ago, people flew up, flew up high, and the uh, data that we have is not very good. And so the big push here with Earth MRI is to get these really high-resolution data sets. And so we start with the places that might have some critical mineral resources in a, in a big, big region around these areas to try to, to focus our, our efforts. So the search for critical mineral resources has brought the U.S. Geological Survey to the Colorado Mining Belt with its rich documented history of mineral claims and the potential for untapped resources. Critical minerals are metals which are vital to issues of national security, such as manufacturing computer chips and building solar panels or otherwise powering the Green Revolution. Funds flowing from Congress are supporting the survey, which will create an updated map of mineral resources across the U.S. And with minerals comes mining. Depending on what they find, could Southwest Colorado see a revival of its mining past? Grau says the information, once collected, will be made public. Then, she says, It will be up to the private sector to decide what they might pursue in terms of of mineral exploration. So mining companies will be able to access the data and see what potential exists. In recent weeks, the skies have quieted above Telluride, and the survey work over southwest Colorado has been completed. Next spring, the USGS will move on to flights farther north in the Crested Butte area. It'll take a couple of years before the final data is released, but, says Grau, I have seen some of the um, preliminary results from the area and there are some, some bigger features of, that we hadn't seen before that we're seeing in a regional sense. So that's been kind of exciting. Um, I don't know what it means in terms of mineral potential at all. Right now it's just interesting that we're seeing geology that we hadn't seen before. Interesting indeed. Perhaps for mining companies, and certainly for Coloradans hearing the buzz of not-so-distant helicopters. For KOTO, this is Gavin McGough. Harmful algal blooms are a major problem in bodies of water across our region, and detecting them can be complicated. Using the power of satellites, researchers in Idaho have developed a tool that could make detection more efficient, not just there, but across the West. 
The Mountain West News Bureau's Murphy Woodhouse reports. Tyler King is a research hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He hops into a truck at the agency's Boise headquarters. The destination is Lake Lowell, a reservoir some 20 miles west. Lake Lowell, as is common with many other water bodies in the western United States, um, grows an awful lot of plant matter. It can also grow cyanobacteria, one of Earth's oldest organisms and a key source of our atmosphere's oxygen. But they can produce toxins harmful to humans and other animals and are one type of algae that can cause harmful algal blooms, or HABs. Much monitoring is done by water managers and members of the public, resource-intensive work with limited reach, thus the interest in satellites. Basically, for the past 50 years, there have been satellites orbiting the planet, uh, basically taking Earth selfies. Some can ID cyanobacteria in blooms in the ocean and other large water bodies, but at a resolution that doesn't work well with the narrow, snaking arms of some Idaho lakes and reservoirs. Others with finer resolution can't make those IDs, but they can identify chlorophyll, suggesting cyanobacteria and at certain concentrations a bloom. King's team found some 17 methods for extracting that information from satellite images. None of them worked particularly well just by themselves, uh, so we built an ensemble out of all of them. And that proved pretty effective at showing where concentrations could be dangerous. High over the other side of the Earth, a speeding satellite is on an intercept course with the reservoir. It's one of the European Space Agency's Sentinel-2 polar orbiting satellites, whose images form the core of the monitoring effort. We want to be on the water body at the same time as that satellite image is collected. At a boat launch, King's colleagues Rob Florence and John Karakaburu are slowly backing a simple aluminum boat into the water. Before the boat gets underway, troubling signs are already clear. You can see these uh, clumps of clumps of algae here. They, they look like colonial microcystis to me, but I'm not a phycologist, but it definitely looks like, uh, it looks like a cyanobacteria. At the first stop, Rob and his colleagues break out the gear. And this is a water quality sond. That will capture temperature, pH, and other water quality data. They also gather water for testing and churn it for uniform sampling. Here's King. And after the fact, we will take the, the field data and we'll match it up with the satellite-based products uh, to quantify how accurate they are. That will make the tool even more reliable. One task remains to finish the first stop, snapping a photo with a highly specialized camera. And right now, there's a cloud in the way. Every five or so days, updated maps are uploaded to the public web application. Some Idaho water managers are intrigued by its potential to save time and resources monitoring. King says the tool is currently calibrated for Idaho water bodies, but with additional work, it could be used much more broadly. It's already being used elsewhere in the West. It's really uh, been a game changer these last few years. That's Kurt Carpenter, a fellow survey researcher based in Portland. Having the application calibrated for more areas you know, could be helpful, but there's really no reason to believe that the algorithm that was developed for Idaho here, that it wouldn't hold in other places. I mean, it, it, it seems to be working beautifully in Oregon. When planning field work, he says it allows them to more efficiently target sampling sites. Back at the boat, the sun is starting to peek through. John readies the camera and Tyler is set to take notes. We're going to have a short window here, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. John snags a few more images. And that's, that's everything. The crew stows the gear and Rob steers the boat to the next site. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Murphy Woodhouse. 
And that's the KZMU News for Tuesday, November 14th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.